From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. The best way to support the show is by booking a Disneyland, Walt Disney World, Disney Cruise Line, or Adventures by Disney Vacation with Dreams Unlimited Travel. Get a free no-obligation quote today for your next dream vacation at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to episode 276 of Connecting with Walt. I am your host and Diz historian, Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my good friend, Mary Jo Mulatto Willie. Mary Jo, welcome back to Connecting with Walt. How are you today? I'm doing pretty well. Hi, Michael. Long time no talk. I've missed the, uh, the, the Disneyland reunion show, which was a big bummer for me because I always love talking to you and our other friends. But I'm happy to talk with you tonight and to listen on uh, the next installment on one of my very favorite characters. So, Yeah, yeah, we're continuing our series on the making of Walt Disney's Bambi this week. Um, Folks are probably hearing that my voice is a bit rough. I was on a wonderful celebrity cruise that turned out not to be the cruise we had thought because... It was going to go two days in in Egypt, three days in Israel. But unfortunately, war broke out in the Middle East. So it became a wonderful Greek island cruise with a cup with also we went to, you know, we went to Crete and Cyprus and as well as uh, we will, of course, started out in Athens, Mykonos, um, uh, Santorini, Rhodes, and then... um, and then Crete, Cyprus. I always feel I'm missing a port. And then we went to uh, a couple of ports in Turkey, Bo- Borum, I think that's how you say it. And then, uh, and then the only original port on the cruise, Ephesus. So I was very happy. I got to see where St. Paul preached. I got to see the Blessed Mother's home where she spent her last years. It's wonderfully preserved by the Franciscan order, which is a Catholic order of men and women. And, um, and Ephesus is amazing, uh, amazing place. I and think if I were to go to the Middle East, that would probably be one of the, or at least to Turkey. Um, if I were to go there, I would definitely want to go to that location. Yes, yes, absolutely. So anyway, so then I spent a couple of days in Santorini because originally we weren't going there. And then um, somewhere... On the way back, I caught just one of the worst colds of my life, and I still have it. And it affected my voice. And um, I have not had laryngitis since I was a teacher. And uh, I've had laryngitis this whole week. It's affected my primary job, which I also use my voice. This is the first day this week I can even approach talking. So I apologize for my voice, and I am hoping we can get through this episode um, today. So thank you, everybody, for your patience as I sort of croak my way through. I always say this is my Lauren Bacall voice. You know, and <laughs> you, do I, sound, 
You do sound kind of pretty, kind of husky in that. Uh, yeah, a little sultry. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> so I will be drinking a lot of tea during this episode. Um, so in episodes 269 and 270, Mary Jo and I began our discussion of Walt Disney's Bambi. So if you haven't listened to those episodes, you may want to pause this episode and go back and listen to those. Also, if you've not watched the film, this is a good time to pause. We have a lot of spoilers in this episode. So, and, and, you know, people say, oh my gosh, the film was released in 42. There are new people always new to Disney and new to films. So I know it's silly to say spoiler alert, but you know, if you have a six year old listening to the show, they might not have seen Bambi. Right. So, um, so, you know, you never know. I know adults who have not seen it who are Disney fans. So um, so that's why I bring that up, because, you know, we have new generations all the time discovering these films. So when we left off, oh, Mary Jo has her little Jim Shore Bambi. Such, I think I have the same one. Really? Actually. I love this one with the little, uh-huh. um, with the butterfly on his tail. and That's one of my favorite back. scenes. Yeah. And um, I have, I think I have a thumper also. Oh, I don't have The a Jim thumper. Shore thumper. I, yeah, I really like Jim Shore, but this, um, I, I now have a room, a guest, my guest room is now all Disney with, um, a lot of artwork. Like, um, I have my name by Dave Avancino. I have, uh, um, oh my gosh, I forgot their names. Uh, Kinney and Kevin Kidney and Jody Daly. Yeah. yeah Jody mm-hmm. and Kevin. I have, um, some signed artwork from them and I have, um, a little, a little, little something that Rhino made for me, and I, anyway, it's all in my in my office. Um, but Bambi stays with me, so my that's room. cute. That's cute. Also, I don't know if you recall, but when I was a boy, they had those little, fairly inexpensive ceramic figurines of different characters from films that were on sale in Bambi, and I started collecting those. Well, they were they were all the Disney films. And I started collecting those. I started with Snow White and because um, wow. I could afford them. And I kept collecting them into college and beyond. That. And then they disappeared. But I have a set of Bambi. And the Bambi figurine is, is the one he's turning around looking at the Aww. butterfly. And now, of course. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. And now, well, of now, of course, they are outrageously expensive on the, you know, third markets, oh, you know, yeah. secondary market now. So. If you have but, those uh, um, out, uh, I'd like to see a picture if you could post that when in one of your. Uh, yeah, I have them in a case in the front room. It's a case that yeah. um, Carol's brother-in-law made for Carol for her precious moment figures. Mm-hmm. And then she decided they got too commercialized and she boxed them all up. I have to figure out what to do with them. If anybody has suggestions, email me. And then um, so I put all those little figurines in there because um, – I had them on a that, that we had these this weird little indentation thing that I had um one year for Carol's birthday I had mirrored and put mirrored shelves in and we had the we had um th- my these little figurines were there so we moved those into the glass cabinet and then we put um Jim Shore Disney figurines inside the glass nice <laughs> alcove in there so anyway and that's where bambi and thumper are so 
Anyway, so where we left off last time in episode 270, the Nazi Blitzkrieg of 1939 wiped out the lucrative foreign market for the Walt Disney Studio. But if Walt was worried, it didn't show. Excitement at the studio was high for the theatrical release of Pinocchio. Bambi would soon be in the animation stage of production, and the whole Disney staff would soon be housed all together in a brand new state-of-the-art studio. Tremendous progress had been made with Bambi. In 1936, the animal drawings in the studio's short films had looked like designs for toy manufacturers rather than forest animals. By 1940, the animation was smoother and added visual drama to every scene. Walt anticipated even greater revenue from Pinocchio than Snow White, and this would enable the animators to make Bambi even more wonderful, both visually and in its storytelling. That is until February 7th, 1940's premiere. Despite the positive reviews for um, Snow White, people were now more concerned about the United States entering the war um, in Europe, oh, I should say, despite the positive reviews for Pinocchio, people were now more concerned about the United States entering the war in Europe than they were about the adventures of a wooden puppet. Despite it being the most beautiful and expensive cartoon ever made, it failed at the box office and was a stunning blow for the studio. Most of the animators were now working on Fantasia. Milk Call and Frank Thomas were continuing with their experimental animation on, on The Young Fawn after studying miles of film of live deer and talking to the sketch man who had been drawing deer for over a year. Dave Hant, supervising director on Bambi, later said that Bambi was a most difficult picture to animate because of the anatomical construction of the deer. All the key animators were taking special instruction in deer actions, all of it most difficult. I felt sorry for them and the problem they had to meet. Although they had no f- although they had the film of their live Bambi and Feline to use as inspiration, the young deer had no expressions, no smiles, no eyebrows, nor fat cheeks they would have to be humanized a great deal to achieve the level of expression of Eric Larson's Figaro that Walt wanted. Milt and Frank designed the animals with smaller muzzles and larger heads, and this gave them the ability to create expressions on the deer. When Milt and Frank had each animated about 100 feet of young Bambi and Thumper, creating footage that ran just over two minutes, they felt confident enough to show it to Walt. They scheduled a meeting with Walt on March 1st, 1940. This would serve to be a turning point in the production of the film. Everything, including four years of work by Mark Davis, Milt Kahl, Frank Thomas, Tyrus Wong, Peter Ben, the sketch artists, the nature filmmakers, it was all on the line. Would their work be good enough to communicate the story in an entertaining way? It was well known that Walt rarely gave a direct compliment. He believed in letting his team feel better 
and, and feel that, you know, that, that sheer perfection was the standard he expected. After viewing the footage, he turned to Milt and Frank and with tears in his eyes said, thanks, fellows. That's great stuff. No kidding. Those personalities are just pure gold. Walt went on to praise them for the easy pace of the film and liked that they were not hurrying and were taking their time in telling the story. He concluded the meeting by saying, it's your picture. You guys have a feeling for this picture. You belong to this picture. Walt had stressed the importance of working with a small crew and the right people who, quote, are not going to be weights around your neck, unquote. In April, Eric Larson and Ollie Johnston were moved from Fantasia over to Bambi. Bernard Garbett, um, who they, everybody referred to as Garby, and Mark Davis later joined the Bambi team. Walt liked Garby's naturalistic drawings and hoped he could help animate the more realistic scenes in the film. Eric Larson helped Garby adapt his drawings to the new character designs. Mark Davis had also been a sketch artist who was unexpectedly assigned to the animation team by Walt. Walt was looking at story sketches Mark had done and said, I like these sketches. I want to see those drawings on the screen. Have Milt call and Frank Thomas teach him how to animate. Later, whenever Mark had difficulty with animating a scene, he would say, this is your fault. Walt told you guys to teach me to animate and you didn't do it. By late spring, the studio had somewhat gotten over their depression over Pinocchio, as they realized that Bambi was a true work of art and an entertaining film. There were still some problems to resolve, but everyone was excited about the prospects for the film. Everyone on the film believed they were creating the biggest, warmest, most beautiful, most impressive film ever. The most challenging problem they now faced was the one they called rubber antlers. When discussing how to make the old stag appear impressive and commanding, it had not occurred to anyone how to animate the rigid, complex set of horns and how difficult it may be. They all agreed that the great prince of the forest had to be the most majestic and heroic character in the film and that required an impressive array of antlers ever seen on a stag in any forest. Yet, no one had considered the perspective changes of the bony antler when the great prince of the forest turned his mighty head. In the sketches, it looked good, but when animating the antler, when when but when animated the antlers turned rubbery and would not remain stiff nor regal this was a staggering roadblock for the film because there was no way they could present the great prince of the forest without any antlers it was bob jones a model maker for the early walt disney features who resolved the problem he built a model of the antlers reflected them through a mirror onto the drawings of the deer's head, filmed it, and then the animators traced it all onto their drawings. The model could be turned into any direction to match the movement of the animation. 
how clever that was, you know, to, to come up with the idea to get the, to get a model and then use that reflection to, um, so that the animators just had to trace it. I mean, that really shows how true the, the depiction of the antlers are, right? It's going to, it's going to be whatever, however this, however the, uh, prince turns his head, those antlers are going to, they're always going to remain true to form because of mm-hmm. that. Man, just, I, again, I, I'm just amazed at the innovation that they had in creating, figuring out how to create, um, such wonderful animation. Yeah, I mean they were just so clever. It's it's yeah. amazing. You're That's right. Cool. The effects department had expanded to over 120 artists, and Walt was keeping them busy on every film, encouraging them to add drama, excitement, mood, and believability, and to embrace new technologies. Walt inspired them to add their artistry to the nature of Bambi. For the forest fire scene, Walt described to them a forest fire he had witnessed. He said, I don't mean to humanize the things, but you watch a fire, you can still keep it as flames and everything, but by God, they're hungry. They're reaching for things. It's when they blow from one branch to another. I don't mean to put hands on them, but there's a force to a fire. There's something alive to a fire. It has a feeling of a very hungry beast that's out there devouring everything in its way. After hearing Walt's description, the animators knew exactly what to do with that scene. Walt made sure the effects department had everything they needed to handle all the special effects Bambi required. Falling raindrops from all angles, dripping water, mist, Flame, shotgun blasts, wind sweeping across a grassy meadow, and the changing light of a scene. Walt also paid a lot of attention to the film's music, and at one point was critical of his musicians. When he told them, the music has to give dramatic emphasis, and I feel a monotony through it. The way this picture is designed, you haven't told it with dialogue, you've got to do it with music. I tell you, it will add to the picture's greatness if you do have a marvelous musical score, one that really expresses the action and gives force to it. Fantasia has proven this much. Even if this thing is a flop, we'll have gained a thorough appreciation of what can be done with music. One of the reasons Bambi works so well was because of the integration of music with the animation. Visualize in your mind the leaping of the bucks through the meadow, the threat of man approaching the forest, the little April shower, the innocence of young Bambi and Thumper, the terrible consequences of the hunters in the forest fire. All of these scenes were animated to match the feeling of the music. This was possible due to the musical skills Walt and his team developed whilst creating Fantasia. For three years, Walt had tried to find a way to recreate the haunting scene from Felix Salton's book in which the last two leaves of autumn discuss the end of their lives and what will happen to them in the next life. The animators had long felt the scene from the book was not right for the film. Although Walt believed this scene would provide a dramatic transition to winter, he finally gave up saying, 
I can't conceive of the leaves being as effective in the picture as it was in the book. Walt had come to realize that the strong imagery of depicting the last two leaves on a barren tree, trembling in the cold wind, then finally losing their hold on the tree whilst being supported by music, would be far more powerful than the quiet dialogue from the book. In the film, the two leaves swirl off the tree and land quietly together on the ground. Walt and the animators were confident that no one in the theater would miss the meaning of this scene. After this beautiful but melancholy scene, Walt felt it needed to be followed by an uplifting scene and thought that Bambi should get a surprise, similar to one Walt got as a boy. Said Walt in his story meeting, A kid goes to sleep at night, and then he wakes up in the morning and looks out, and the ground is blanketed with snow. I'll never forget the thrill I got out of it. The rest of the story meeting was spent with telling stories about how kids play in the snow and fall into deep drifts and try to dodge the clumps of the snow that fall off of trees. Walt knew audiences would understand this, and it would awaken happy memories for many. A sequence from the book that Walt and his animators liked was an argument between the forest animals and a dog about man and his power. The dog explains why he killed the fox and how wonderful it is to do man's bidding. As the animators developed the scene, the one dog became four or five dogs. And Walt said, I would take time on those dogs. I think it's a swell section because it's a question you ask all the time. Here man has animals and goes out and hunts animals. There's a reason. The dog believes in man. These animals can't understand why. The scene was gradually developed to be one in which a pack of vicious dogs chase and trap Feline on a ledge by leaping and snapping at her. Tension is increased with the knowledge that man will soon be there. Walt wanted some squirrels to see the men coming, then plead with the dogs to let Feline go, but the dogs refuse. Walt felt the audience would root for these little animals who were risking their own lives to save Feline. However, in the scene, the voices of the little squirrels could not be heard over the snarling, growling, and barking of the dogs, which was much more gripping. When it was determined that Bambi could be the hero in this scene, the squirrels were dropped. The dogs attacked. There was still the tension of man's imminent arrival, but Bambi attacking the dogs to save Feline created more tension and was an emotional high point of the film. Walt wanted the film to be feel realistic, but he didn't want to see ugliness or cruelty depicted in the film, nor dying animals. Any animals shot by hunters were hit off stage out of the audience's view. We only see near misses when animals are fleeing man. Bambi is the only animal we see hit by a bullet. There were many meetings to discuss the sequence in which Bambi's mother is shot. Milt Call wanted a long build-up with a blizzard becoming more intense so that the shot would come during their greatest hardship as Bambi and his mother are huddled together. Walt didn't like that idea, saying, 
You don't want a blizzard when she gets shot. Wouldn't it be better to build the feeling up and then finally have relief? Just as there's relief, then comes this other thing. Everyone agreed more emphasis should be made on the lack of food during winter, giving greater importance to the finding of new spring grass. Story director Purse Pierce suggested that Bambi should be the one to find the grass, start to eat, then run back to his mother and tell her about the grass. Walt responded, Don't you think Bambi's mother ought to find that grass? It shows her feeding her young, taking care of him. It's just before she gets killed, and it makes you feel he's more helpless than everything. They found grass. It means that winter is nearly over. In other words, they've gone through the danger. They settled on Bambi and his mother detecting man's presence in the forest and running for the protection of their thicket. The mother would hold back to protect Bambi whilst urging him to run faster. This seemed a bit clumsy, so they settled on having both of them running as fast as they could, with Bambi's mother shouting, Don't look back! They come to a log lying over the path. Bambi darts beneath it whilst the mother leaps over it, going out the out the top of the frame. A shot is heard, and her crumpled body falls into the scene on the far side of the log, and she lies motionless. Meanwhile, Bambi, Bambi arrives in the thicket, feeling safe, but he doesn't see his mother. Bambi retraces his steps, and when he returns to the log, his mother's body is gone, with only an imprint of her body in the snow, where she fell, and marked where she was dragged off. Okay, Michael, you're just describing the scene and I'm, I'm tearing up, <laughs> picturing it in the movie. Just the the way they told that whole story and, and this um, young, vulnerable fawn losing his mother like that. Um, I remember how impactful that was to me when I first saw the movie. And, and like I said, just remembering that and hearing you describe it. I'm sitting here with tears. I feel kind of silly, but... Yeah. That just uh, tells you the how powerful Walt is in his storytelling. Yeah, well, this this version of the scene was powerful, and and it worried Walt. He said, "You know, she's dead." But the little guy comes back to that thing, and the snow begins to pick up, and he's crying, "Mother!" And it would tear their hearts out if we could get that little guy crying, "Mother!" But this blizzard comes. This little fellow in the blizzard, and right out of the blizzard comes this stag, you know? You never come back and show the imprint of the mother. It's all by suggestion. As everyone thought about this, Walt said, Do you think it's too sad, too gripping? It's powerful. I just wonder if coming back and seeing her form isn't just sticking a knife in their hearts. He then talked through the scene another way. He starts following those tracks, which are the man's tracks, and where the deer has been dragged, getting frantic, falling into snow, getting deep into snow and building up, and the wind begins to blow there, and pretty soon someone speaks to him and he stops. He looks up, and there's that stag up there. Walt didn't like this version either, and said, okay, he's hunting for his mother and he never finds her. It stops any awkward business of him seeing his mother's form and starting any extra crying. Walt didn't like the idea of Bambi stopping with a 
quote, sort of scared take because you think it might be man. And we cut and through that haze of snow, we see the shadow, which is the form of the stag. And then we hear him speak. Your mother can't be with you anymore, unquote. Of course, that's the scene we ultimately see in the film. Just all the all the different versions is them talking it out. I, I really like that you captured this because it shows just how complex um, the whole storyboarding and and them working to try to figure out what is the best way to tell the story. Mm-hmm. It was really impactful. Yeah, yeah. They spent a lot of time on this scene, mm-hmm. um, going through it. Now, Fantasia was released on November 13th, 1940. Although Fantasound Sound had been created for the film, making Fantasia the first film to be released in stereo and is considered to be the precursor to surround sound, Dolby Stereo, and other similar systems. However, the cost of leasing and installing Fantasound Sound in theaters exceeded the film's revenue in many of those theaters. This created serious concern at the studio that another film's box office revenue would not pay for the cost of making the film. Walt always tried to shelter his staff from the problems of running the studio because he felt these worries would negatively affect their creative energies. As enthusiasm for Bambi was growing and everyone had now moved into the new studio, Everyone was unaware that the days of prosperity for the studio were about to end. There was only one scene left in Bambi that needed to be developed and moved into animation. The charred forest scene in which Bambi realizes there is a power over all, including over man. From the beginning, Walton considered this to be the big finish of the film and the animators have been working toward this critical sequence in all of Bambi's training. However, there was a big problem. The idea of showing a hunter dead as a result of his own carelessness. Showing this view of death had never been done in an animated film. Although Pinocchio had been killed attempting to save Geppetto, that was a fantasy. This was real. During a story meeting, Walt said, I think you can show a form, you can show a burnt tree, you can show a hand, you can show a hat, a gun. However, David Hand wanted to show the body of man and didn't feel just showing the gun was enough. Walt responded, I was wondering if it could almost be a silhouette effect of a form. You wouldn't see any details to speak of. You feel the human form. Walt then said, Out of the fog looms these two forms of these two deer, and you come right upon them, and they're standing there looking down at something. The stag says there he is. Bambi says he's dead. They don't have to fear him now. The stag says no, man is not the force behind all things, and then he turns to Bambi. Do you understand? Bambi answers, I think I do. There is another who is over us all, over us, and over him. And now you hear this faint starting of just barely audible rain musically, and the stag stands for a moment. Now you take my place in the forest, and the rain is coming down very softly. 
Goodbye, my son. Walt then said, I'd make the pure silhouette forms. Lay off any details. It's a swell way to handle the mood of this thing. It demands this. And also you're in an awkward thing where these deer might look terrible if you tried to get them dramatic. The meeting ended without any resolution on how to depict man or how to show the deer during their lengthy dialogue. It was decided to screen the sequence before an audience from outside the studio to assist with their decisions. Walt was reluctant to indicate how man should be shown. Dave Hand chose the clearest and most specific drawing and had it placed in the reel, arguing it would help them to determine what direction to go in or what to eliminate. On the night of the screening, the audience enjoyed the show. But as the charred forest sequence came on the screen, the audience appeared to be nervous and unsure. The sequence seemed too slow after the excitement of the forest fire. When the picture of the dead hunter came on screen, the audience gasped in shock and all 400 people stood up. <laughs> I bet Walt that was... was uh, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I was say, I bet that was a, a surprise to the animators when they saw the audience's reaction. They're like, well, holy cow, that's not what we were uh, <laughs> expecting to happen in this movie. Mm-hmm, I think you're right. Walt was critical of Dave's actions and demanded that the whole sequence be removed from the film. This left the film without an ending. Multiple story meetings were held to determine the grand summary of the film. It was finally decided to go with a simple ending. Rather than following up the forest fire with a moody ending, it was determined a contrast would be best with the bright new growth of the spring forest following the fire and the introduction of Bambi's children with Feline in the forest thicket. As all the forest animals congratulate Feline, the scene moves up to focus on the stag and Bambi, posing majestically as they look down on the scene below. The two deer look at each other, then the stag walks away, leaving Bambi on top of the hill. From the very beginning of the project, Sidney Franklin had said, the audience loves to feel they have seen a complete cycle. Eric Larson also felt that the life cycle was very important and they should leave the audience with the feeling that life goes on and still has its beautiful, rewarding moments. The film's overall theme differed from Felix Salton's book. In the book, the fawn gained enough wisdom from his experiences in the forest to take the place of the old prince. Man was the chief threat to the deer, and it was essential for Bambi to learn there was someone even greater than man. The film was a story of a particular deer from birth to maturity and then to the birth of his children. It does not stress what he learned or what he learned in life, so much as it allows the audience to see what life was like for this one deer. Part of the reason Walt wanted to simplify the ending and cut the charred forest scene was due to the studio's growing financial problems. The profits from the studio of the profits from Snow White were spent. 
The disappointing box office results from Pinocchio left the studio with unpaid loans. I believe they totaled about $5 million. Oh, in those times? Yep. Yep. Yeah. The new studio was not paid for, and Fantasia was performing below Mm -hmm. expectations. Walt had been cutting expenses little by little, but now something drastic had to be done. One day, he held a meeting with his key animators and and directors to explain the studio's situation. Expenses on the film had to be cut, not just by a little, but by half. Walt insisted that enough good animation had been done to carry the film, but admitted there would be no film if something extreme weren't done. The staff tried to work faster, put in overtime, and to complete scenes with every shortcut they knew. Finally, Walt told them, don't trim, eliminate. Don't fuss with details. Cut out the whole scene. Cut where there are a million animals. Walt didn't want them to compromise on key scenes of personality or acting or storytelling, but to cut any expansive scenes. For example, instead of having eight scenes of Bambi and the stag running from the fire, use five. Any additional scenes requiring effects animation, careful work, or special handling were cut. Many of the cuts resulted in removing the tedium from the film and ended up adding spirit and texture to the film. There was still a question as to whether the studio would have enough money to complete the film. The Reluctant Dragon was released on June 27, 1941, at a cost of $600,000, and it did not recover its cost. Everything now depended on Dumbo. Walt told film director Frank Capra, if this picture doesn't go over, I'm through. During this time, the studio lived from film to film. There were no television shows or extravagant merchandising deals to bring in extra revenue. Walt wanted to keep his team together and knew that if he let them go, he would never get them back. But it was no longer possible. The studio had a staff of 1,300. Could it operate on half that? Who should be let go now? Who would be let go later? Morale was low at the studio. When Walt had a team of less than 400, he had a very personal relationship with everyone. This was no longer possible with such a large staff. There were communication breakdowns, and many employees did not know Walt. A screen cartoonist union had been ratified at the MGM Animation Studio, and another was currently organizing at Warner Brothers. A small group was working to organize at the Walt Disney Studio. One day, the union organizers went into Walt's office and threatened to turn the studio into a dust bowl unless he signed with them. Walt said he had no right to sign them over to any union, and they should have the right to vote on it. The organizers reportedly said, we might lose that way. If we strike, we know we will win. The strike was called on May 29, 1941. There was tremendous emotional stress on both sides, and a great schism developed between those who had cause for criticism of the studio and those who simply believed in Walt. 
We covered the strike in detail during our conversation with Jake Friedman, author of the book, The Disney Revolt, The Great Labor War of Animation's Golden Age, in episodes 233 and 234 of Connecting with Walton. Highly recommend you um, listen to those episodes and read the book. As the strike progressed, Walt became more frustrated and angry. One day he made the sad comment, the spirit that played such an important part in the building of the cartoon medium has been destroyed. The animators who remained struggled to continue work on Bambi, but production eventually halted and the studio closed in mid-August whilst a government arbitrator worked out a settlement. When the studio reopened on September 12th, it was unionized. The settlement that had been worked out stipulated that for every three employees who had stayed and continued working at the studio, two strikers had to be brought back. This meant a large number of strikers returned to work and close to 100 employees who had remained working through the strike were laid off, including Tyrus Wong, who had been responsible for the artistic style of Bambi. This arrangement left everyone dissatisfied. In spite of all this, Walt was determined to move ahead and find a way to put differences aside, find a way to work together and continue to make films. The supervising animators on Bambi still aspired to make a quality film, but found it difficult to convince themselves it was still possible. The spark had gone out. However, by November, they started to make progress and once again believed Bambi might be completed. After all, they asked, what more could happen? Hmm. What more indeed? On December 7th, 1941, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The United States was at war. On December 8th, the Army took over the Walt Disney Studio and used the sound stages to store their trucks and equipment. Shortly afterwards, all productions were shelved, and everyone had new assignments on war-related projects. Everyone except those who were still working on Bambi. Many more weeks were needed to complete the last drawings, the ink and paint, the checking, the final camera work, and all the follow-up tasks. Time Magazine had planned to feature Dumbo the Baby Elephant on the cover of their magazine for the week of December 7th, 1941. This promotion was expected to double film attendance during the Christmas holiday season. The studio was financially desperate and needed those funds. But like most everything else Walt had hoped for in 1941, it was not to be. Instead, the cover featured German Field Marshal von Bock and the outbreak of war. Dumbo brought in a profit of $850,000. The studio expected double that amount and needed four times that. No one at the studio faced 1942 with much hope or enthusiasm. Roy Disney would later call this era of the studio the Lost Years. In 1942, half the studio's employees were drafted, enlisted, or left to take jobs in the defense industry. The expanded Lockheed staff moved into the northern section of the animation building. 
the remaining staff still working on Bambi felt isolated and alone. There were approximately 40 people left trying to finish the film. When it was completed, there was no excitement nor thrill that usually accompanied the accomplishment of completing a film. Now, Mary Jo, I know you work in uh, the industry and might know a little history of this time when the Army moved in to the studio. Was there anything you wanted to add? I wish I knew more about it. I work for a competing aerospace company, so I don't know know, um, that much of what was going on with Lockheed, but I do remember taking the... um, the Bob Gurr tour and where we went to the Glendale airport and we saw where Lockheed um, had their, their, um, where their work was being done and over there. And I, and that was really interesting, but I didn't realize, I mean, you, you always hear about, you know, the, that the um, aerospace companies, every, everybody was gung ho, right. For, for the war effort. But I never realized how much it impacted this particular movie. There were so many things going, um, so many challenges for the studio, the, the strike. And I remember, um, I think I read that Walt felt, um, kind of a, a betrayed when, when that happened with the union and then with the aerospace company taking over their, their building and the, the remaining people, um, there's so few of them trying to finish this film. It's, it, it's, I, I get, I feel like a sense of despair for them uh, during this time. That's yeah. what I didn't realize. <clears throat> I know. I know. It's amazing. They were able to complete it yeah. through all these challenges over the years. I wonder if so. something like that, if that were to happen today, if the dedication would still be there, you know, things get shelved and, and uh, new project and put aside in new projects, but um, back in in the Disney Studio, and I guess Walt was really depending on on this particular film to help bring them. If if you know, we'll find out when as you go on. You know, if the film helped with their their finances, and and if Dumbo also helped them during this time. This that's just it's crazy. Yeah. A preview of Bambi was scheduled for February 28, 1942, at a theater in Pomona, which is about 40 miles east of Los Angeles. A small chartered bus transferred 15 of the studio's top personnel, directors, and supervisors to, vil- to view the film with an audience. Afterwards, based on the audience reaction, they could make any needed edits to the film. The ride to the preview was quiet. Everyone on the bus spoke in hushed tones. The film had taken seven years to complete, with just over one million drawings and approximately 250,000 cells. In the screening for studio employees and their friends, the reactions had been mixed. Some said the film was beautiful and that they loved the characters. Others said it was, quote, saccharine sweetness and too long. So they had corrected some of the sweetness, but did not understand how it could be too long. And and that's because they had made so many cuts, you know, along the way. I think they cut over 20 minutes of the film. So it waltzed some in direction. Do you, I'll, I'll ask at the end. I, I have a question regarding those cut scenes. Okay. 
Bambi was very different from the recent studio films Fantasia and Dumbo. Dumbo had been bright, funny, fast, and with a few tugs at the heart. Bambi was nothing like that. There was a fear that Bambi would not make back its production costs. The preview audience was lively and excited. They were a good audience. Thumper was an immediate hit. The audience loved the April shower sequence. They quieted down during the winter sequence. Were they enraptured, patient, or bored? The shot that killed Bambi's mother caused some slight gasps. However, when Bambi searched for his mother, crying out, Mother, where are you? A teenager in the balcony called out, Here I am, Bambi. There were a few snickers, then silence. The Disney team was crushed, angered, and disappointed. The ride back to Burbank was even quieter than the ride out to the theater. Walt dismissed the teenagers being insensitive and not representative of the audience and did not consider making any changes to that scene in the film. Walt did recommend a few edits here and there, but there were no retakes or additions to the film. The final version was released on August 13, 1942. Box office attendance was lower than hoped for. Reviews were mixed and most glib and breezy. There were They were seeing something new from the Walt Disney Studio and unable to grasp its significance. Variety enthused over the breathtaking aesthetic of the animation, saying, Bambi is gem-like in its reflection of the color and movement of sylvan plant and animal life. However, a reviewer for the New York Times wrote, In search for perfection, Mr. Disney has come perilously close to tossing away his whole world of cartoon fantasy. It would be many years before critics would see the magnitude of the film's concept and its effect on viewers. Most people who saw Bambi were enthralled and deeply moved. Some parents thought it was too disturbing for their children, even though they were entranced with Thumper, Bambi, and Flower. In May of 1943, Walt wrote to Sidney Franklin, telling him that the film was still, quote, plugging along and it looks as though it will end up by paying its own way. When the war ends and the world markets are opened up, I know it will do well, unquote. Perhaps Bambi was too dramatic and disturbing for a world at war. At a cost of $1.7 million to produce, it did not recover its cost during its first release, bringing in a disappointing $1.64 million. Bambi earned three Academy Award nominations for Best Sound, Best Score, and Best Song for Love is a Song, sung by Donald Novis. The film highlighted from an animal's perspective the huge emotional and physical impact of game hunting. The American hunting lobby denounced not only the scene where Bambi's mother is shot, but the whole film. The magazine Outdoor Life labeled it the worst insult ever offered in any form to American sportsmen and conservationists. The movie led to a questioning of national hunting practice. Historian Ralph Lutz called the lingering impact of the film the Bambi syndrome, which has been defined as an affliction in which a person cannot deal with life on one's life on life's terms. So they make up a fictional sense of reality, sometimes borrowing ideas and morals from Hollywood's children's movies. 
I heard that they were even getting death threats from hunters. Wow. At the, you know, at the studio. So, you know, that's what I had read. <clears throat> After Bambi, whenever an animator or an artist heard Walt coming down the corridor to check on their work or what they were doing, the code that was passed to warn others was, man is in the forest. Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. <laughs> And that continued up until, you know, when Walt passed. Yeah. In 1944, Walt permitted the USDA Forest Service to use Bambi and his woodland friends in a forest fire prevention campaign. And this was before their famous Smokey Bear character. Bambi was featured on a popular poster, proving that the use of an animal figure as a fire prevention symbol would work. The fawn could not be used in the following campaigns because Bambi had been loaned for only one year. So the Forest Service needed to find an animal that could be the property of the Cooperative Forest Fire Prevention Campaign, leading to the creation of Smokey the Bear. In 2006 and again in 2010, Walt Disney's Bambi returned to appear in new Protect Our Forest Friends Anti-Wildfire Forest Service Campaigns. A sequel based on Felix Salton's second book, Bambi's Children, was in development after the release of the original film, but it was never produced. However, Bambi's Children became a Disney comic book, published in October 1943, drawn by Kevin Hultgren, and featured the Princess Fawns, who were named Gino and Jury. Hmm. Or Guri. It's spelled G-U-R-R-I, so I'm not sure how it would be pronounced. Animation from the film has been reused in several other Disney films, especially footage of birds, leaves, and generic woodland. One scene in Fox and the Hound reused the footage of animals running from rain in its little April shower sequence. The most recognizable reused footage is a few seconds of Bambi's mother looking up from eating grass just before she is killed by man. This footage has been used in scenes in Sword of the Stone and The Jungle Book. It is also featured in The Rescuers during the song Someone's Waiting for You and in the opening shot of Beauty and the Beast. Several minor characters from the film also made cameo appearances in other films, such as The Little Bluebird from the Let's Sing a Gay Little Spring song sequence appears in Alice in Wonderland. The hunting dogs appear in The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. I believe they also appear in The Fox and the Hound. And, and the duck and quails from the little April shower segment also appear in The Fox and the Hound. Bambi was also a huge influence on future animated films, especially Disney's 1994 epic, The Lion King. In The Making of Bambi, Pr- Prince is Born, Don Hahn stated, Bambi at its heart is the coming of age story. What happens when we lose our parents? What happens metaphorically when we're kicked out of the nest? We borrowed from it in big heaped spoonfuls for the Lion King, and happily so. Walt had hired many talented people to work on Bambi, and they would grow with him and create many more films. One day in the early 1950s, Walt gathered the remaining Bambi team together and with a happy, relieved look on his face announced, Bambi has just paid for itself. Almost 10 years later for it yeah. to do that. I mean, that's, that's, I, um, 
I, I think you have to be the ultimate optimist to keep working when when it seems that these films didn't um, they weren't box office hits, which which is surprising because they're so beloved. Mm-hmm. They sooner or later they find their audience, or the audience yeah. finds them. Yeah. But this was the same thing with Fantasia. I think Walt found out in a meeting that Fantasia was profitable, you know, and that's because of these re-releases every seven years. It sort of goes back to what I said at the beginning of this episode. There's a new generation for these films and Walt recognized that. And that's why they were re-released the theaters every seven years. It cost very little to re-release them. Um, You know, just some marketing and, you know, reprinting of the films because they weren't digital in those days. Right. And um, so it was almost pure profit, So I looked you know, up, coming uh, in. I looked up when the films were released because I remember seeing it as a child and I wanted to see how old I was. So, of course, we already know it was released in 1942. It was re-released um, 1947, 1957, 1966, 1975. 1982, 1988, and then of course, uh, uh, Blockbuster and, you know, <laughs> those other, the, those other, you know, um, VHS and betas and stuff mm-hmm. kind of did these in. But I saw the 1966 version. So, so I was did only I. six years old when, um, when that, when the movie came out. And I remember my parents taking us to the theater to see it. I remember, the feelings I had watching it and how much I loved it. So um. I was 10 and that was in the days when they had the kitty matinees. Yeah. So they would have a double feature and then in between they would have a whole slew of cartoons, usually Warner brothers cartoons. And, and a Disney and it, movie too. Yeah. It'd be wow. a Disney, usually an animated film and then, uh-huh. a, and then the cartoons and a live action film. Okay. And that could be Disney, but that could be another studio as well. Oh. But children's films. Got it. You know, because there were a whole lot of them made back yeah. in those days. And then they would be on television. Yeah, I don't remember know, any of those, but I sure do remember Bambi. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times Bambi would be, or, or the, the animated cartoons would be re-released and accompanied by a more recent Disney film. Oh, and it was sense. usually it was usually a live action film or a lo- or one of the shorts like one of the nature shorts yeah. or something like that back in the days when they used to have double features in the theaters right? mm-hmm. that was the yeah. norm yeah it was the norm yeah. oh those are the good old days yeah. and it was what a 50 cents to get in the fi- get in oh, the yeah. theater yeah definitely I, I think i just bought a theater ticket today for 14 dollars <laughs> so it was a fathom events thing. So anyway, but Bambi inspired Walt Disney to acquire the rest of Felix Salton's back catalog and explore other areas of Disney nature. As part of Walt Disney's true life adventure documentary series of the 1950s, the film crew sort of transformed Salton's 1938 story about the squirrel Perry into a combination of wildlife documentary and fantasy. I, I think that's a delightful film. I have a little golden book of it too. Oh, do you? So, yeah. Yeah. The original. So, 
The Walt Disney Perry film was released in 1957, and it, as it says here, I, I grabbed this right from the review. It featured likely the only existing and fabricated recording of a squirrel dream sequence. And it, it, it's adorable. And then Salton's 1923, The Hound of Florence, inspired the 1959 live action comedy, The Shaggy Dog. I remember that one too. It, it, I do too. I, I, and it, it, it's loosely, very loosely based on the Hound of Florence. And now we come to the present. <coughs> A live action Bambi remake was announced in January, 2020. <laughs> I see your expression. Disney <laughs> announced in June, 2023 that the live action Bambi remake would be directed by Sarah Pauly, who had just recently won an Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay for her work on Women Talking. Prior to her Oscar win, Pauly also directed several other films, including Away From Her, Take This Waltz, and Stories We Tell. Writers on the film will include Geneva Robertson, Warrett, who wrote Captain Marvel. We are seeing, you know, that did fairly well in the theater. Mm-hmm. Micah Pfizerman Blue, <coughs> who wrote A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. And Noah Harpster, who wrote, who's on Maleficent Mistress of Evil. Now, the film is reported to have more of a musical tone than the original. I'm not too sure what that means. With Grammy-winning musician um, Casey Musgraves attached to write songs and music for this Bambi remake. The film will be produced by Chris Weitz, who wrote, who is on um, Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. I, partu- I like that film, actually. Yeah, I like that film, too. That's mm-hmm. one of my um, preferred ones in the latter movies. Mm-hmm. Paul White, um, who worked on Fatherhood, and Andrew Miano, who worked on The Farewell. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, and they own a production company called Depth of Field. So what do you think of uh, the possibility of a live-action Bambi coming? They call it live-action, but, you know, it's, yeah. C- it's CG animation. Yeah, it's CG. I, I- I'm not a huge fan of those. The Farewell I did see, that was with Aquafina. That was um, a really good movie. That was, I really, um, it was a somber movie and, and unlike some of her other ones. But um, back to the Bambi, you know, I wasn't a huge fan of um, Lady and the Tramp or, you know, Lion King was okay, but I, I'll, I'll watch it just because I, you know, Bambi's near and dear. Plus, I I do enjoy watching all the Disney um, movies, but I I don't get it. I I don't care for the live. Well, I'm going to call it live action for lack of anything else. Yeah. Um, with realistic looking animals because. <clears throat> They run into the, you know, what we just described, the problem we described earlier in this episode, where the animators cannot create emotion. Right. You know, they had to change the the look of the animals in order to give them cheeks and expressions and all that. When you're making animals look hyper-realistic, you can't do that. And that was, for me, the big failing in The Lion King, because these animals... <clears throat> They looked like lions and, 
and hyenas and all that who don't emote expressions, you know, right. on their, their face. And then they're trying, they're dead. Their eyes are dead and all that. Yeah. They don't smile. Yeah. And the singing, they, well, animals don't sing. So they don't look natural when they sing. Right. And, and, and I, I mean, lady in a trap was even worse. Yeah. I just. Yeah. I, and that's another, I love Lady in the Tramp, and it's just, I just couldn't get into it. And no, I'm, me neither. I'm kind of concerned about, you know, Flower with his bashful look when, and Thumper with his chortles and everything. I just, <clears throat> I just don't see, um, I, I, I don't have high hopes, which is kind of disappointing because I, I do want them to succeed, but. Yeah. Now, I, it would be interesting if they took more elements from the book yeah. and incorporated oh. it into the film. I wonder <clears> if they're <throat> going to have Feline's uh, brother Bobo in it. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Gobo. Gobo. I don't. Mm-hmm. My uh, my cousin's nickname was Bobo. Okay, Gobo. <laughs> but uh, I wonder if they have that. And when they're talking about more musical scenes, maybe the fl- the birds are going to be singing because I can't see. Bambi singing, or I don't know. I don't know. I I don't hold out much hope for this. A rap song. (laughs) Yeah, as he thumps to the beat. (laughs) And you know, Aquafine is going to be in it somehow. And I don't care for her as an actress. I I really don't. I like her, but there's just she's already been in two animated features. Give get somebody else. You know, they need to and. It, it takes the, away from the originality of the story to have recogni- such recognizable voices. And the problem is her voice is, yes, so recognizable. Yeah. And it's one note. She has yeah. to play a wacky character because she has a wacky voice. And yeah. and so she's the same character. I watched um, Crazy Rich Asians flying back from Greece because it's a 12-hour flight from Santorini to Atlanta. And so I watched it, and again, she was the same character yeah, that she was playing that dragon. And, um, and I've seen her, and you know, she was in one of the Marvel films, Shang Chi, same kind of character. Yeah. And I, I don't know what their love of her is. Um, I'm, you know, she does that one character very well, but it doesn't translate well to other films. Yeah, and so. and for me, it's um, I don't know if it was one of the uh, Disney Limited podcasts or another one where they were talking about when there's an element in the film that takes you out of the story and you're concentrating on that element. I think having Aquafina's in, in any future, hopefully she's not in Bambi, but any future, that's what's gonna that's what's gonna do it for me. It's gonna take me out of being immersed in the film because I'm going to be saying, mm-hmm. Oh, that's Aquafina's voice. And mm-hmm. I, I really think that, especially with animated films, um, they need to stay away from that. I agree. But I just know she's going to be a bird or something. I just <laughs> know it. Oh gosh. So anyway, we'll see. I might yeah. be wrong. I'm probably being terribly unfair to her. But, um, why well, I, I like there's her. a reason for her. There's a reason for her popularity, so I probably shouldn't yeah. be so harsh. But anyway, I, I'm one of the few people that liked her scuttlebutt rapping song in the. Little oh, not me! Oh my gosh, no! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I thought it was a horror. Yeah. So, so I'm, so I'm, I'm part of that audience, you know, <laughs> but not in, not in Bambi. It's just, I didn't, uh, I didn't mind that they changed the type of bird Scuttle was, but again, yeah. it was her voice and it took me right out of the film. So, yeah. See, that's, that's anyway. the thing is, is, uh, and I'm hoping that doesn't happen. And <clears throat> I, I don't know. I, I think, uh, you see, you see the, um, how how detailed Walt Disney gets and like I said you know he's he's such a visionary and and he was really involved I don't know that the um the leaders the animation leaders today if they get into it as much as Walt did and you know so it just seems, it seems like they're churning things out instead of spending the time to develop uh, the characters and the story and try different scenes and, and not releasing it until it's worthy to be released and carry the Disney name. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, hopefully they will because they need a hit yeah, desperately. So, <clears throat> so with its theatrical re-releases, home video releases and releases to streaming services, including Disney plus, Bambi has continued to charm viewers with its believable fantasy. Of all the films Walt Disney made, Bambi was his favorite. There's Mary Jo holding up her little Jim Shore. (laughs) (laughs) So it is my hope that our series on the making of Walt Disney's Bambi will help you with your appreciation of the film and also have a deeper understanding of the creative effort and challenges behind the film. And just as we talked about Swiss Family Robinson last year, I hope that, um, and I know some viewers, some listeners have read the book after our series on the making of the film, and, and, and actually all the films, Swiss Family Robinson. We encourage you to read the source material for this film, Felix Salton's Bambi, A Life in the Woods. So this is our book and film for this year. Yeah. And, and next year have, it oh, go ahead. I would say if and if you don't have time to actually read it, then get the audiobook and listen to the story because mm-hmm. it's it's really a good story and it's a lot um it's pretty deep. Yeah. For, it is. And it's time. it's a short book. It's a very yeah. quick read. So um and then next year uh, I'm almost done with twenty thousand leagues under the sea. And I think that's what we'll do is our book and film. Or next no, year. I so start never, reading it now. <laughs> I've never read the book, nor have I seen the film. Oh, my gosh. I know. I think That's it's one, one of the greatest Disney live-action films they've made. I need to – Is and I think it's on Disney Plus, so there's no excuse I think it for is. me not watching it. So No, none at all. <laughs> uh, but Mary Jo, thank you for sharing your love of Bambi Oh, with thank us. you for including me. I learned so much, and – and um, I love, I just love how you tell these stories, Michael. It's just, uh, it, it brings the uh, creation um, to life for me, at least, you know. So um, thank you for including me. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. And um, yeah, when I was researching the background of Babby, it made me really <clears throat> appreciate this, the film more when I realized all the struggles they had behind the scenes yeah. and all the conversations that they had and that went into the making of the film. I mean, it just really impressed me a lot. So I hope it impressed 
all of you as well. But now it's time for This Week in Disney History. Alrighty, Mary Jo is our our, uh, guest host today. Would you like to go first? I would, and I have it up, but my computer is buffering on me, so give me a second. I should have done a screenshot. Here we go. Okay, so... um, there's, there's a lot happening in November, but what I pick this time is uh, kind of hits close to home for, for us that live close to Disneyland and go there quite often because they're getting ready to open the Adventure Tree. So um, if Adventureland Tree, excuse me. So for those of us who have seen it through the different iterations, on November 18th, 1962, the Swiss Family Treehouse attraction opened in Adventureland. And here we are, you know, several years later with a, another iteration. But it says, the opening ceremony is hosted by Walt Disney, Haley Mills, um, the star of The Parent Trap and Pollyanna, John Mills, Haley's father and star of Swiss Family Robinson, and Kevin Corcoran, who appears in both Pollyanna and Swiss Family Robinson. He's always moochy to me. So, mm-hmm. uh the Swiss consulate presents Walt Disney with a flag that will fly over the attraction. So here it was in 1962 at this time that the Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse opened for the first time. And now we're going to see it again. And I'm wondering if uh, Mind Thy Head is still on the steps as we go uh, up or down oh, the house. Oh, it has to be. It just it, has right? to be as a homage to the original. Right? Yeah, as an homage to it. And I think, didn't they also have the song? I think now, uh, I've read a little about it. I've not watched any of the videos because they've had their sneak previews Uh and soft openings. I have friends who have seen it. They've gone to the soft opening. I think they were there last week at Disneyland. And and they stayed in the new Disneyland um, DVC villas as well. And so I'm looking forward to hearing what they have to say about it. Yeah. But um, they apparently in the different rooms, there are slightly different versions of the Swiss Polka, po- Swiss Polka, however you say it. Polka. Um, polka, <laughs> Swiss Polka. I don't know. I know. But um, and reflecting sort of the theme of the rooms and the oh. and, and, and who belongs to the room. That's my understanding from what I've read about it. So I'm looking oh forward gosh. to hearing that. Yeah, I'm going on December 5th, and then I'm going back on December 9th, so I know. Oh, you're just going to miss me, because I'm there that first weekend. I'm going to miss you, and I had it on my calendar. You're coming out the first weekend in December, because that's your tradition, but I'll be uh, in Yosemite with uh, our guests. So we have family mm-hmm. coming from Spain for three weeks. So uh, dress warmly. Be- yeah, yeah. <laughs> they no. wanted to go to Yosemite. Yeah. I'm saying, please don't snow when we go. Well, if anybody is there on just in the first weekend in December, um, let me know. We can go through the treehouse together. So. so, have your friends told you who's narrating Candlelight Processional this year? Does anybody know? I don't know. They I usually haven't. don't announce it. They Disneyland keeps it so close to the vest. Mm-hmm. It's a true, which is which is kind of cool because, um, you know, it's not uh, at Walt Disney World. Everything is so scheduled, right? And yeah. at Disneyland, we have a lot of 
things that seem to pop up that seem to be spontaneous, even though they're not. It's spontaneous for us because we don't know till the. And they usually announce it after it leaks out because somebody will see the dress rehearsal. (laughs) Yeah. And then it leaks out and then Disneyland officially announces it. So sometimes it's not announced till like the day of candlelight. So who's your, I know you've seen it several times. I've seen it twice, maybe three times, but I've seen it. I know for sure twice. Once in the Fantasyland Theater. Remember when they had it there for a, mm-hmm. for a few years? And it was David Ogden's Steers. No, he'd and be then very I good. Saw, yeah, he was very, very good. And then I saw it um, when they had, remember when they uh, had like several nights where annual pass holders could? Yes, Carol and I saw it several times oh. over those years. And you could book a dining reservation like at the Disneyland Hotel. Yeah, when they had but, when they had the whole that whole port area with multiple restaurants. <clears throat> oh, I remember that. Yeah, uh, it was um, Kurt Russell who was the narrator, ah. and we saw him with his with his grandchildren shopping in the store. And you know, it was nice that people left him alone. So, but but we were geeking out. It was uh, my my good friend Leslie and me that went to go see it. So, and mm-hmm. that was that was really cool so uh, hopefully you get to see it again this year michael um and yeah see if i want to brave the crowds and stand and all that stuff and see it so but i always look forward to it i think it's just so so beautiful yeah yeah and then that the uh, that procession as they go up main street right even if Mm -hmm. you don't see the actual candlelight processional just seeing the cast members singing as they as they um go and and I'll, I'll say prom well, as they parade down main street and then form that Christmas tree at the, mm-hmm. at the main street train station. It's just beautiful. Even if you just can hear it yeah. <clears throat> because they do the, the sound is gorgeous and it's all over that area of the park. Yeah. It's wonderful. <clears throat> well, mine is a little sadder. Um, oh, mine no. is, <clears throat> excuse me. November 19th, 2013. Um, This is when Diane Disney Miller, the oldest daughter of Walt and Lillian Disney, passed away at the age of 79 in her home in Napa, California. Of course, she and her son, Walt Walt Elias um, Disney Jr., basically. We all call him Walt Walt Jr. He's Walter um, Elias Disney Miller. Um, he founded, he and his mother founded the Walt Disney Family Museum, and that opened in 2009 in San Francisco's Presidio. And, and of course, that was a tribute to her father's legacy. And, and basically, Walt, Walt tells his story in his own words in there. So it's a crown jewel that every Disney fan should visit at least once. And, um, and, I, and Carol and I were lucky to have met her many times. Uh, once when I was, um, it was Fleet Week, and there was an event at the museum. I was sitting at a table eating lunch that I'd bought at the little cafe they'd had at the time at the museum. And she came down, and as I was watching the Blue Angels, whoever it was, around from the from the porch of the museum. And she said, Can, may I join you? And so what I'm going (laughs) to say, and so she sat down and sat with me and we chatted briefly, but I didn't want to 
intrude and we talked about what a nice day it was and a beautiful view and you know, I mentioned to her just, you know, how grateful I was for the, you know, for the, um, the, for the museum and all that. And so then, um, then some friends of hers came and joined her and all they did was complain about the cafe no. and the food and all that. I thought you're, you're complaining to her. Yeah. I thought, oh my gosh. So I, um, that's, a shame. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So. It was anyway. I thought, what are you thinking of? She just, she just ignored them. I think she changed the subject. The idea is to go to the museum. The cafe is a convenience for us. You know, is something they didn't have to have a cafe. No, and they really don't now. (laughs) Yeah, it never reopened after the pandemic. Oh, it didn't. No, they serve snacks and drinks for a period of time. But she uh, and she was so kind to Carol. And and a couple of times, like when Carol was, you know, I'd bring up the van to the front of the museum, and Carol would walk with her walker. She'd walk with Carol oh, nice. to the walker to the van and give her a big hug and help her into the van and all that stuff. So she and Ron Miller were very sweet. Everybody, I've I've been fortunate enough to meet a number and get to know a number of members of the Disney family, Disney Miller family. They are How many all kids s- did they have, Michael? They had Joanne, they had like right? six or seven, yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah, they had they had a big family, wow. and um and a couple of them are you know are on the board of directors, and I think Walter is now head of the board of directors. We talked about that last week on the show, and two of the grandchildren, no, two 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 of the other children are on the um, board, but um. I believe. And so anyway, but they're all nice and down to earth and not full of themselves or anything. So they they're were all people. brought up. They are yeah. really, really nice. So um, anyway, and just, and that's what, that's what Walt would have wanted. Walt and Lillian would have wanted because they both were that way as well. So speaking of the museum. So, so anyway, her, her legacy is, is felt. You know, everyone who knew her, who were museum members, definitely miss her. But when you walk through the through the galleries, you definitely feel her presence there, and and her legacy, and Ron's legacy as well, there. But uh, and a listener after last week's show emailed me and asked, "How do I become a member of the museum?" and asked me if I could mention it on the show. So basically go to the museum's website, waltdisney.org, and then select, there's a little menu bar. You want to select join and give. And when you click on that, then there will be an option labeled membership. Click on that, and then it gives you all the membership membership options. And then just select what option you want, and then you go through the whole process for submitting payment and your personal information and all that. And it it goes through. Well, as I was explaining how to become a member of the Walt Disney Family Museum, Mary Jo ran into technical difficulties and had to drop off. So I am going to, uh, I, I thanked her for being a part of the show this week. And 
What I am going to do now is uh, let you know that I used several resources for this episode, including the book, Walt Disney's Bambi, The Story and the Film by Ollie Johnston and Frank Thomas. There were a lot of website articles that I used through the whole series. So I'm going to list them all here. Um, and then Craig will have them in, um, the, in the, um, episode description. Um, so it includes how Bambi changed Disney's animation by Mark, my Matt Milliken. Bambi by John Wills, 10 Facts from Walt Disney's Bambi by Jim Fanning for D23. Consider the source, Bambi, um, which is an article on the Walt Disney Family Museum website. To discover the real Bambi, Walt Disney goes to Maine, the New England Historical Society. The Untold Truth of Bambi by Sarah Buttery for Looper. The artist, why the artist behind Bambi's, Disney's Bambi still influences animators today by Artsy Editorial. That's a very nice article about Tyrus Wong. Bambi, the music of the immortal Disney animated film by Jamie Atkins. The Challenge of Realistic Animation, Disney's Bambi by Mary Ness. Bambi, everything we know about the live action remake, um, which was on Collider.com. The Disney Wiki um, article on Bambi. The Bambi Syndrome by Eco Artland. Very interesting article on that uh, psychological and emotional condition. So until next time, I want to wish you all a very happy Thanksgiving for everyone who is celebrating. And you can send me messages at michaelbowling at disneyinfo.com. On X Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm michaelbowling connecting with Walt. Instagram, I'm michaelbowling the Diz. You can connect with me and Craig and all of our guest hosts on Twitter or X Twitter, whatever it's called these days, at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our episode description. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Pandora, and Amazon podcasts, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother, Roy. Roy.